Good morning. Um, today's reading is Song of Songs, chapter 1, um, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 7. Solomon's Song of Songs. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. Friends say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. She says, how right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Friends say, if you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. She says, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She says, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming and our bed is verdant. He says, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, he is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here. And how about that? What a reading. Should have come with some kind of warning. It just launches straight in, doesn't it? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Oh, some of you kind of woke up a bit at that point, I think. It's, uh, it's a bit unusual. Um, would you believe, though, the passage we just read is one of the... Um, it's one of the tamer parts of this Song of Songs. It just kind of keeps getting spicier from here. Uh, so perhaps it's a good thing we've hit some cooler weather of late. Um, I should say at this point, 
Uh, if you've joined us for the first time this morning, a big welcome to you. Um, I don't know what you're expecting to find on your way to church today, but I doubt it was a reading of ancient erotic poetry, and I especially doubt that you would have expected to find a Scottish man uh, giving advice to our children about their love lives, but welcome to Trinity Church Colonel Light Gardens. It's a, it is a place where anything can happen. Um, we have hit a very strange part of the Bible in many ways, uh, but the reason we're looking at it, it it's an unexpected type of, uh, type of book. The reason we're looking at it over the next four weeks is that we believe that God has given us every part of the Bible for our own good. And so as a church, we try and read every part of the Bible. Uh, the, the difficult bits, the confronting bits, the confusing bits, and yes, even the Song of Songs. But what did we just read? What is this book all about? Uh, now, I know it's a very strange book uh, because, uh, you all think it's a strange book, I know that because uh, the last few weeks I've mentioned to a number of you that I'm getting ready to preach this series on Song of Songs, uh, every time I've mentioned it to someone, the, the response has always been hysterical laughter, uh, which, which is interesting. Uh, and then some kind of comment like, well, good luck with that, Cam. Uh, so, so thank you all for your great encouragement uh, in the build-up to this series. But it's fair enough, isn't it? It is an unusual book of the Bible, and uh, I might get the giggles as we preach today, who knows? Um, it's an unusual book in that, for a start, it doesn't mention God at all. It also doesn't say anything about Israel's history. It doesn't even really give us instructions on how to live wisely. In fact, reading this book, it kind of just feels like you're an innocent bystander, and you're sort of accidentally overhearing two lovebirds kind of exchange romantic poetry with each other. It's quite raunchy, and you're sort of just like stuck in the middle, and why am I listening to this? What is this? Uh, for many generations, Christians before, and uh, Jewish people before us have been really uncomfortable and quite awkward about the Song of Songs. Like, for a start, why is it in the Bible? Historically, I think people have tried to avoid this kind of awkwardness, and most generations, what they've done is they've decided to read the Song of Songs as if it's an allegory. They sort of said, well, it can't really be about romance and sex, like not in the Bible. There must be some kind of deeper spiritual meaning here that must be sort of hidden behind what we're reading. So, you know, they would say when we read of you know, kissing or caressing or invitations to bedchambers, well, it's not really talking about kissing or caressing or bedchambers. It's, it's actually just about God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. Now, I do want to say the Song of Songs does show us, it does shed light on what God's love is like for His people. We'll come to that much later. But uh, for most of Christian history, teachers, uh, mostly celibate monks and priests, have spiritualized this whole book and they've ripped out all the human elements of it. They've just refused to look at the very descriptive, very human details of the book. It really is about two people who want to kiss each other. That's what it's about. I think that history is a tragedy. For a start, it's, uh, it's a really bad way to read anything, unless it's supposed to be an allegory. You know, unless it says at the start, Song of Songs, this is an allegory. Like, you might read it that way if it said that. It's an especially bad way to read a part of the Bible where you just kind of ignore the details and you make it say whatever it is that makes you feel more comfortable about it. Now, thankfully, we don't need to feel awkward at all. And we don't need to over-spiritualise the details of this book. Because overall, it is a celebration of God's good creation. God wants us to see the goodness of human desire, the goodness of physical intimacy and romance. 
And God stamps it all with his approval by causing this song to be placed right in the Bible. And it's called the Song of Songs, literally the best song. Sure, it might not be your favourite song, maybe not yet, over four weeks, maybe you'll think otherwise. But I would charge you, I think you would struggle to find a more vivid, uh, more captivating and more enticing set of lyrics anywhere in the world. So let me explain, I think, just kind of the big picture, what's going on in this book. I think what, uh, what I think is happening. There are two main characters, there's a man and a woman. We don't know who they are, and I don't think, therefore, that they are historical characters. Now, some people would say that Solomon is the man, or at least he's involved. Um, After all, verse 1 tells us that it's Solomon's Song of Songs. And we'll see throughout, as we've just seen in the reading, the woman will call the man her king, or a king, a number of times, and even calling him Solomon. Now, I don't think it's about Solomon. Uh, The title of the uh, song could just mean it's a song dedicated to Solomon. It could just mean it's a song written in the style of songs that he liked to write in. He wrote quite a lot of songs. It could also just mean that it's just drawing on his fame. It's kind of about, symbolically, about this majestic king. And if you will, drawing on his legendary status as something of a sex symbol, if I can put it that way. Like Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Which, on one hand, I think tells us that it's very unlikely that he wrote a song about exclusive love between one man and one woman. We've seen a moment as well that I think what's happening when the woman uh, talks about the king, what she's doing, I think, is she's saying that she sees him as her king. This is poetry, it's a song. So as she uses royal language, she's just comparing her man, a normal guy, to the most majestic guy, the king of kings, the the most majestic, rich, uh, magnificent Solomon himself. So what we're reading is a vivid celebration of exclusive love between just an ordinary man and an ordinary woman. Now, that might be all well and good, but why on earth is it in the Bible? Now, firstly, uh, sort of answer that question, why it's in the Bible. Firstly, if you think about it, the Bible starts with a wedding, and it, with, you know, got Adam and Eve in the garden where everything is good, and then the Bible finishes with a wedding. The last few chapters of Revelation, the sort of vision John the Apostle has of the last things, he talks about a wedding, of, the wedding of all weddings, really, where Christ marries his bride, the church. Christ and the church are united together, and it's sort of a strange sort of image, but you kind of step back and you realise the story of the Bible shows us the story of history is one of a marriage in the garden, uh, where God starts history off and moves all of human history towards that final wonderful marriage, the truest marriage of all, the, the kind of the most blissful, most joyful of all occasions. I'll say more about that next week in the way that I think marriage is such a big part of God's plans to this universe. In fact, I'll, I'll go as far as saying I think marriage is somehow sort of woven into the fabric of our universe to keep pointing us towards this, this true marriage of Christ and the church. We'll come back to that later. Today, though, I just want to um, point out another reason, a very important reason this book is in the Bible. I think a big reason this book is in the Bible is that it shows us that God affirms what He has created is good. God created man and woman, and that is good. God gave us bodies. Our bodies are good. Now, you might not have ever thought otherwise. That might not surprise you. It might sound really obvious when I say our bodies are good. But I say it because lots of people, including many, many Christians over many generations, have got that very, very wrong. Uh, For a long time, Christians thought of the body as something bad, 
Uh, that really um, the purpose of life was for your soul uh, to kind of try and get away and escape from your body, which was bad. Your soul was good, body was bad. So the Christian life often became all about denying your body and denying pleasure. So people would fast or they'd eat kind of very bad food. People would wear sackcloth and make themselves look miserable and unattractive and just wear ugly clothes. Kind of the idea was, you want to be really spiritual, try and be as miserable as possible. Sounds great, right? But that was, that was a, a very influential way of thinking about the spiritual life, the Christian life even, for, for many generations. Which is why I think we ended up with so many people reading this book as if it's allegory. Because they started by assuming, well, it can't be about sex. Because, you know, body, bad. Sexual desire, bad. Therefore, sex, well, actually, it can't be bad because God, you know, says you should have sex and make babies. But if you're going to have sex, make sure you don't enjoy it. It was kind of the, kind of the idea there, I think. It was taught for many generations. It's tragic. It's a tragic history, I think. Because what was taught was that what God has created is not good. It's not to be enjoyed. It's not to be celebrated. It was assumed that God doesn't approve of sexual desire. He doesn't approve of sex. Now, it's true, of course, sin does affect our bodies, our desires, our hormones, our minds. And I'm not saying that all sexual desire or all sex is good. We're all affected by the fall when sin entered the world. We're all affected by the sort of all-encompassing, all-distorting effects of sin. But what I am saying is that, as a part of creation, the human body is a good thing. In God's design, sexual desire and sex are great things. It's true, of course, we look forward to the great day that our bodies are made new, our bodies won't be affected by sin anymore. And it's important, I think, to to keep affirming that bodies are good because we see that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise as a soul or a spirit. He rose physically with with a body, a real body. Which tells us bodies are good. Jesus has a body now. We will have bodies for eternity. We won't just be floating spirits. I think that's, that's a great affirmation of the goodness of bodies. So as we live now, yes, our bodies are affected by sin, but they are good. What I think the resurrection of Jesus tells us is that these physical things created by God, these are things to be enjoyed and celebrated. God affirms the physical good things in creation because He loves giving us good things. He wants us to enjoy the good things He gives us and then to turn to Him in praise and adoration. So, think about this. God made us with taste buds. That was a kind thing to do. But even more than that, He then went on and made a universe with things like wine and chocolate and coffee and mangoes. Amazing, right? He didn't have to do that. God could have made everything taste like cabbage, right? But he didn't. He's kind. He's good. He's a wonderful creator. He gave us eyes, and then he gives us gardens and trees and oceans and sunsets. He gives us a sense of smell, and then he fills the world with fragrance, with perfumes, with flowers, with wine, and then coffee on a Sunday morning on the way to church. He gives human sexual desires, And he gives us the great gift of marriage. So that as we enjoy all these great gifts from him, we turn to him with thanks and with praise. We turn to him saying, wow, you're a really good creator. You're very kind to give us these good things. Thank you. I think a part of the uh, the reason this book is in the Bible is that it helps us look at all these great things in creation and turn to God with thanks and praise to celebrate him, to celebrate him for the good things he's given us. 
Now, even as I say that and describe these things, uh, of course, we start thinking about all the bad things in the world. And of course, we realise there are so many people who don't get to enjoy all these good gifts through no fault of our own. Many people don't get to enjoy marriage. And then many marriages are far from happy or fulfilling or lasting. And so it's, it's interesting that, on one hand, this, this book is in the Bible to help us celebrate, but I think a part of the reason the book is in the Bible is that it helps all of us. It helps us to look forward to something better. It helps us look forward to the time when God will make all things new. I'll say more about that shortly, and as we go through this series, we'll, we'll think more about what it looks like to, uh, to mourn and grieve uh, as we read about an ideal, beautiful relationship. Because this book is something that's for all of us, not just for those who are married. It's not sort of some kind of how-to manual for married people. But uh, for now, I want to move on because I think uh, that's probably my record for the longest introduction to a sermon ever. Uh, So let's get started. It's it's almost like I've been avoiding going through the passage really, isn't it? Did you get that? Anyway, uh, I think I'm ready to go through it now. You guys look like you're ready as well. You're not all avoiding eye contact. That's a good sign. Um, Now, I'm going to go through this... um, bit differently to how we normally go through passages. I'm not going to go through verse by verse, mostly because it's a song. It doesn't sort of lend itself well to logically analyse it verse by verse. Uh, And the other reason is, well, there are some things in this song you don't need me to make more explicit than they already are. We can kind of just sort of fill in the blanks ourselves as we go. We're uh, we're able to do that, I think. So, let's get started. Um, What I want to do as we go through uh, what we've read this morning is kind of just point out a few features of this relationship and try and show us that it's, I think, an idealised relationship. Uh, it's, it's kind of perfect in a, in a way. Uh, it's a, sort of this great, wonderful, uh, idealistic picture of a romantic desire, but it's set in the real world with all its problems. So that's what I'm kind of trying to show you in the next little while. Uh, so if you have your passages there in a bit of paper, turn uh, to verses 2 and 4 of chapter 1, and notice as the woman sings of her man, uh, she mentions pretty much all of the senses. So touch. Uh, she, she thinks his kisses are really good. Taste, he's better than a taste of wine, and his fragrance is pleasing. Even the sound of his name, the sound of his name, it seems to give her goosebumps or something. Sight, well, she doesn't mention it in these verses, but she'll go to great lengths throughout this book to say just how much she likes looking at him. Uh, she's not shy about that point. Touch, taste, smell, sight, sound, it's all there. I think what we're seeing is that all of life is better because of her man, and she wants to be with him. So verse 4, she says, let the king bring me into his chambers. It's a great statement of desire, isn't it? Now, I said earlier, um, she would talk about the king uh, quite a lot in this song. And I think rather than being about an actual king, it's poetry. It's her way of saying how highly she thinks of her man. Now, I say that largely uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is when you get to verse 7, it seems, well, actually, he's a shepherd, isn't he? He's a shepherd, he's not a king. He's just a normal guy. But as she looks at him, what she sees is a king. Someone as noble and majestic and desirable as even Solomon, the most desirable and majestic of all kings. It's kind of the language of adoration. This is just a normal couple. He's a shepherd. She works in the vineyards. But they use the language of royalty because they see the best in each other. I think one of the great ways you see this kind of get blended together, this royal imagery with the kind of the language of the countryside, is uh, chapter 1, verse 17, if you have a look there. Uh, He says, The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. 
Now, it sounds like, on one hand, like they live in a beautiful palace with expensive woods sort of uh, as, as their rafters, but it also sounds, doesn't it, like they live in a forest and they live amongst the trees and the beautiful kind of surroundings of, of a forest. Both those things are going, it's, it's beautiful poetry, isn't it? Back to verse 4, though. Back to verse 4. Let the king bring me into his chambers. She wants to be with her knight in shining armor. It's, it's uh, not very subtle, is it? But I want to point this out because we'll see this uh, all the way through the book. It's not subtle, but it's not crude or vulgar. All through this book, we'll see suggestions, we'll see allusions, we'll see metaphors of physical intimacy. But it's not graphic or explicit. The language is always tasteful. It kind of draws us in and uh, it's very respectful of privacy in a way that is interesting. Like, even though we know exactly what they're talking about, they're talking about sex, but as they talk about it, the curtains are kind of closed on the more explicit parts of that. Nevertheless, they are shameless, actually, aren't they? The language they use, they're shameless. In, and I mean that in the best possible way. When I say shameless, I'm thinking of Adam and Eve in the garden who were, who were naked with each other and they felt no shame. No awkwardness or embarrassment or insecurity. Just a man and a woman who, who delight in each other. Have no inhibitions, no embarrassment. Just a desire to be with one another and to flourish together. That's what we're seeing all through this Song of Songs. It's a wonderful picture. And it's no, no accident, I think, that all throughout the Song of Songs we get language of the garden. I think in the background to this song is the Garden of Eden, man and woman uh, in an idealistic setting. I think it's deliberately used to keep us thinking of uh, this ideal relationship we see right at the start of time. For instance, in the, even this passage we've read uh, this morning, there's vineyards, there's fragrant flowers, there's flocks of sheep, there's foliage, there's trees. Chapter 2, verse 3, there's fruit tree in a forest. It just makes you think of a garden, doesn't it? Through it all, these two lovebirds, what they're doing is they continually just affirm each other, they adore each other, they desire each other. It's not selfish, it's not inappropriate, it's what they are designed to do. Do you notice how they kind of keep building each other up as well? Uh, kind of, the goal seems to be to make each other feel really special. So have a look at uh, verse 5. I think this is perhaps the first hint in the book that uh, not all is well in the world they live in. So have a look at verse 5. The woman, she knows she's lovely, and yet she seems self-conscious about her skin tone. Uh, perhaps we would say she's insecure with how she looks. Turns out it's not just a modern problem. So verse 6 she says, sorry, uh, she, her skin is dark, verse 5, why? Well, verse 6, she's had to work in the sun uh, in the family vineyard. And now she's comparing herself to all the pretty girls of Jerusalem. She's scrolling through her Instagram feed and she just feels average. Because, well, the city girls, they all have light skin. Um, and that, back in this culture, that was, that was a desirable thing. You wanted to look, uh, have nice, nice light skin because it shows you're not one of the poor people working in the fields. She's very self-conscious, it would seem, and insecure, verse 6. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. She goes on to say, I haven't had a chance to look after myself. I've been busy in the vineyards. I haven't had a chance to tend my own vineyard, is her way of saying, I can't look after myself like you girls can. I think there's a real sense of uh, vulnerability and insecurity here. So, how will her man respond? Is he going to be a jerk? Or will he assure her and affirm her beauty? her worth, and tell her how beautiful he is? Well, yes, he does. He does that in verse 9, affirming her worth by calling her a horse. <laughs> I'll admit, pretty unconventional. 
But as we kind of dig in here, you'll realize, actually, this is, this is pretty clever. I didn't get this at first, but I learned something this week. I already knew you're not supposed to call your spouse a horse. That's not flattering. I already knew that. It's fine. What I learned this week was that mares, uh, female horses, I knew that as well, but mares didn't pull Pharaoh's chariots. The girl horses didn't do that. The stallions, the boy horses pulled Pharaoh's chariots. So with that bit of knowledge, you look at what it's saying in verse 9, saying, imagine setting a mare loose amongst a bunch of amped up stallions. Carnage, right? There's foaming mouths, there's fights to the death to win. There's this, this mare walking past, these amped up stallions. I think what he's saying, the man in this song is saying, you are very desirable. You might not feel like it, but I see it. I think that's uh, the same sort of thing uh, at the start of chapter 2, this kind of exchange and back and forth they have. Verse 1 of chapter 2, she says, she's a rose. Uh, although I think, I'm not sure if the footnotes, footnotes are on your uh, handout there, there's a footnote saying that it's probably a more common flower, like a daisy, uh, that kind of thing. Which I think uh, is helpful because I think you realise it might sound like she's saying, I'm beautiful like, a fa- beautiful like a flower, but in fact, I think what she's saying is, there are plenty of flowers just like me in the valley. I'm nothing special. There are plenty of girls out there. Again, I think you sort of get a sense of her insecurity, uh, perhaps again about how she looks. How does he respond? Verse 2, he says, you, look, you make everyone else look average. I've only got eyes for you. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of a couple who, who are firm, who see the beauty in one another. They're not critical of each other. And so for those of us who are married, um, I think this song does give us something we can aspire to uh, in our marriages. We'll come back to this in a later week. Uh, Again, I just want to reaffirm, this is not just a manual for married people, this is something for all of us, but married people in particular, I think, can learn from this little part. What we have modelled for us is that words really matter. It's good to keep telling our spouse, you are desirable to me in all these ways. It's good for us to keep affirming each other, to tell each other, you're special to me in these ways. I think it's also something we see here is that it's important to let our spouse be our standard of beauty, to be our standard of beauty, not allowing uh, the culture's standard of beauty to dictate what we, uh, what we desire. So, if, what we've seen this morning, if our spouse has dark skin, like in Song of Songs, it doesn't matter what our culture says is desirable about skin tone, dark skin becomes our standard of beauty. And then we have eyes only for each other when we work on that kind of standard. It's a great thing, I think a great model for us to aspire to in our marriages and keep working towards, intentionally trying to see the best in each other, trying to celebrate the the admirable, the great things in our spouse. So, an easy application if you're married this week might be to just write down a list of things you thank God for uh, in your spouse. And then tell them, words matter. For all of us, uh, married or not, for all of us, this song is a celebration the celebration of what we might say is an ideal relationship. But, of course, it's set in the real world. And that's important for us to sort of grasp, I think. Like we've already seen something of the insecurities of body image, I think. But what we'll keep seeing as a sort of a pattern in this song is circumstances keep getting in the way of their fulfilment of their desires. So uh, back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we see that they're, they're just trying to find time with each other. There's, there's barriers to what they're able to do and, and barriers to how they can spend time with each other. Throughout the book, we'll see their desire might be good and innocent and right, but things keep frustrating their desires, working against them. So their good desires 
can't always be fulfilled as they wish because they live in a world that's broken. All of us, uh, all of us know this. I'm conscious that uh, many of us reading about a blissful relationship will be painful in different ways. To different degrees, this will hurt for different reasons. It might be that such desire has been disappointed or unfulfilled. The intimacy that we long for might have been lost or spoiled or just not found. I think the unusual thing about a book that celebrates an ideal relationship is that at the same time, it rightly draws us to mourn and to grieve for the brokenness of our world. As we're reminded of just how far-reaching and how powerful the effect of sin is. And so as God's people, when we meet together like this, I think it's right for us to, to mourn together as we look at the way that our desires are often uh, they're not met. We'll spend more time on this next week, thinking through unfulfilled or frustrated desires. But as a short summary of what I'm hoping to sort of cover in the next week, I just want to say this song really does give hope to all of us, especially to those who are hurting. And I hope to sort of unpack that more next week. But today I just want to say... In the big picture of the Bible, this song points our hearts to the greatest bliss, the highest joy. It helps us desire the best thing possible to see our Lord Jesus, our Saviour, to see him face to face and be with him forever. Be with him forever. More on that next week. But to tie it all together today, I thought I want to come back to the big idea that um, we have this book in the Bible to encourage us to celebrate God's giving us good things in creation. I think that's what we want to celebrate today. God isn't mentioned at all in this book, but of course it's smack bang in the middle of the Bible. And so God is clearly in the background as the good creator. The main celebration of the book is, yes, it's a celebration of sexual desire and a celebration that, uh, yeah, it's an amazing delight that God has given us marriage to fulfill that desire. But in the most general sense, I think this song simply points out God is good. He is a good creator who gives good things. He gives us our five senses and he's filled creation with many things that we can and should enjoy and then celebrate. He's given us things to give our lives richness and fullness and delight, all of that so that we can turn to him with thanks and praise and adoration. This song of songs, this best song, I think it invites all of God's people to sing along in praise of our creator. I think it invites us to notice uh, the good things, to see the best things in the world God has made, the enjoyable things, the desirable things. It invites us to notice those things and then it invites our hearts to, to work on an attitude of ongoing thanks and praise, adoring God for all the good things he has given us. It's easy, I think, especially at times like these, uh, to see the problems in our world, to, to worry and to panic you know, we can't buy toilet paper at the moment for some reason. This is strange. It's a strange time we're in. And plenty of people are panicking. They're not looking for the good things, the delightful things in our world. I think so many people in our world just see the problems and never stop to thank God for the good things. Kind of like uh, in the same way a spouse who only ever comments on the negatives or just criticises and puts down. It's all one-sided. God's people, we have a better song to sing, don't we? I think that's why Christian weddings are so good. Christian weddings are so good. I think we celebrate marriage properly as, as a community. 
there's always a, a sort of a right sense of occasion that it's not just about the couple, it's about something far bigger, something far wider reaching. In a way that secular weddings, I think, from my experience, are best kind of just imitate a little bit of, just kind of going through the motions a bit. I also think it's just great to be part of a church community like ours, where we regularly invite friends and family in to enjoy good things together, like curry, or Mexican food, or beer, or chicken wings, all those good things. We say, hey, come along, let's celebrate together our good creator who's given us these good things to enjoy. So, let's keep finding these good things to celebrate. Let's keep fostering hearts that are quick to give thanks, ready to notice the good things, and to say that they're good. Of course, though, we're not naive, are we? We know the world's problems. It's just that we know that there is the good God who stands behind it all. And what's more, we celebrate that He is a good creator, but He's also done something to fix all these problems. He sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross to fix the problem of sin and evil. See, God's people are not naive about our own problems, our own distorted desires, our selfishness, or our failure to think well of God or to thank Him for His goodness. The best song to sing in our world is how Jesus died to pay the cost for all those problems. And to keep seeing that in His resurrection, He gives us the power by His Spirit to have transformed desires, good desires. He transforms our hearts and warms them towards our Creator that we might love Him and adore Him. And he le- Jesus leads us in praise as His people for all the blessings God has poured on us. It's a wonderful thing to be able to sing of Jesus and the things He has done for us. Now maybe you're someone uh, who's here today who's just checking out Jesus, thinking through uh, who He is and trying to make sense of Christianity. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, it's great you can be with us as we look at this very unexpected part of God's Word. I hope you've been surprised by it. You know, who knew? God's all for sex. That's, that's surprising, maybe. Hopefully this morning opens up a whole new set of questions you never thought you'd ask about what life with Jesus is really like. And we have a course starting this afternoon that is all about that, exploring what life with Jesus is all about. There are details in the leaflet, and you can chat to Matt especially more about that. Starting this afternoon, it's not too late to join up if you'd like to find out more. But for all of us, would you please join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very unique part of your word. Thank you that in all its vividness, you give us confidence that you are in every way good and kind and generous. So we thank you for making this world so beautifully. And thank you for making us with desires and then giving us good things to enjoy and to delight in. We pray that you'd help us be a people who are quick to give you thanks. Help us, in a world that's worried and anxious, to be quick to affirm your goodness. Help us notice all the good things, the little things and the large, that we often overlook. And so please give us hearts that overflow with praise and adoration for you, for who you are, for what you have made, how you've done it. Especially, please make our hearts just sing for all you've done for us in your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.